0: From the Financial Times in London, I'm Ben Hall, World News Editor. This is FT News. Syrian government forces backed up by Russian air power are on the brink of encircling the northern city of Aleppo, a stronghold of the moderate rebels in what could prove to be a decisive moment in Syria's murderous civil war. Joining me to discuss the latest developments in the Syrian crisis and their wider implications are Erica Solomon, our Middle East correspondent, and Jeff Dyer, our US diplomatic correspondent. Erica, can you give us a picture of what is happening on the ground right now?
1: Basically, what's going on is that President Bashar al-Assad's forces, backed by massive Russian air power, are trying to break down what is now the last symbolic stronghold for the rebels in an urban center. They have already lost Homs, uh, which was the other big urban center that they had a foothold in. And now the main one left to them is Aleppo. And what the regime forces are doing is basically they're trying to kind of do a pincer movement around the city, which is why aid organizations are very worried that we will be looking at another siege. Siege tactics have been increasing across Syria by all parties. Hundreds of thousands of people are always seen as at risk of starvation by aid organizations. And if Aleppo is added to that, that would mean hundreds of thousands more just in Aleppo alone would be added to that list. So it's a major humanitarian crisis that can affect Turkey and, by extension, the EU.
0: And in military terms, would it spell the end of the so-called moderate rebel forces if Aleppo was sort of cut off by Bashar al-Assad's forces?
1: That's what I've been asking rebel representatives, commanders that I've been speaking with here in Turkey. And what they say is is kind of yes and no. Symbolically, it would be a huge blow. Nobody can deny that, least of all the rebels. But what they say is that they are prepared to switch tactics and to evolve sort of into a more of a guerrilla force that doesn't hold territory necessarily. So while it could mean a very major blow to any kind of organized rebellion holding territory, it's very unlikely to be the end of the massive chaos and bloodshed that we have been seeing in Syria the past five years.
0: And presumably in terms of the anti-Bashar front, it tips the balance in favor of ISIS and away from some of those groups that have actually worked with the U.S. and other allies?
1: That's the other big fear that rebel groups have. Right now, they don't actually know which way this is going to go. It could happen that it helps them unify in a way because now the threat is so massive, One of the problems that the rebels have had since the beginning of the uprising is their inability to unite, You know, constantly splitting off from each other. And oftentimes in these moments of major pressure, the rebels can actually manage to come together. So there have been some successful attempts on a local level to do that. The question is whether they can effectively use that. But on the other side, they're saying that there's a lot of young fighters who are saying, wait a minute, you told us to work with the Americans and with Turkey and the Gulf because they were going to help us gain something. And instead, maybe ISIS and al Qaeda were right, and we should be fighting with them. So they do see that as the major risk ahead, that they will either unite or they will be fragmented even more in favor of radical movements.
0: Jeff, what does the US do now? Has it not been comprehensively outmaneuvered by Moscow?
2: Ever since the Russian intervention started in September, October, I mean, there really been kind of three different US positions. The first that the president is sometimes articulated, is that Russia is essentially getting itself into a quagmire. that there is no winner in this fight, uh, and that Russia doesn't really quite know what it's getting involved in. It's going to end up as a kind of Afghanistan-type stalemate. And so maybe the U.S. should sort of sit back and let them stew a bit. And even after the events in the last week in Aleppo, there's still people in the administration who think that's ultimately correct. I mean, the intelligence assessment from the U.S. at the moment is that, while it's a big defeat for the opposition if they lose Aleppo, this is more in the context of the kind of back and forth of a long-running civil war. This is not necessarily a decisive engagement. And that while Assad forces now have the momentum, they don't have the capacity to actually really drive through a big win. So that's one point of view, but that, in the context of this humanitarian disaster that's developing in Aleppo, that does seem very callous and very passive. The second view which, in some ways, the State Department has been pushing very hard is they have to push ahead with the negotiations to try and have a political transition in Syria, and that argument would be that you know there is potential for a split between the Russians and Assad, that the Russians are not completely wedded to Assad, and if we push hard enough, we can try and prize the Russians away from Assad. There's still some evidence for that. I mean, there was this report that the Russians actually went to Assad end of last year and said he needed to move aside, but that does seem to be disproved by everything that's happening on the ground by this concerted military campaign of the Russians alongside the Assad forces to take Aleppo and essentially to bomb the very people the U.S. is trying to get to the negotiating table over the last month. The third argument is that the Russians have played us, that the only way you're actually going to get a peace process that actually works is if the U.S. and the coalition really enters the fight against Assad, pushes Assad back, and only then will you actually get them to the negotiating table in a serious way. But then that raises all the questions that the U.S. has not managed to answer over the last few years. If you enter the fight, who are you actually fighting with on the ground? Are you going to set up no-fly zones in northern Syria, which you could find yourself taking on Russian jets? All these very difficult questions that the U.S. doesn't really have an answer when come to the fore. So that's the question people are asking now. Have we been played? Do we need to push back? But even if that is the conclusion, there's very little sign that the U.S. has coherent answers to those questions.
0: Erica, is there any hope for the diplomatic track?
1: From what I saw in Geneva last week, I think very little. The feeling I got from being there was that just nobody really knew what the Americans wanted. And a lot of people felt that the problem was that there was what Secretary of State John Kerry thought, and then there was what everyone else kind of thought who was sitting there with the opposition in Geneva. And they just don't seem to have a connect. So that was a big problem was, you know, how are we going to actually create the conditions that we need for talks if we don't seem to be in agreement amongst ourselves and we don't seem to know what we think Russia wants to do. So I think that's still a big problem. The one potential point for optimism, if you want, is we do have a meeting in Munich coming up this weekend and there has been talk that Russia has made a new proposal to the U.S. So maybe both sides will try and actually sit down and decide what it is that they want to accomplish in terms of diplomatic negotiations. But I think that is being somewhat optimistic. The situation on the ground is kind of taking on a life of its own.
0: Okay. My thanks to Erica Solomon and Jeff Dyer. This is an abridged version of the FT's World Weekly podcast. To listen to the full version, go to ft.com slash podcasts.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.